We want to remind you that knowledge isn't power. Applied knowledge is power, where knowledge turns to experience. We encourage you to implement the information shared, allowing you to shift your health and energy. And if this is your first time listening, we truly appreciate you being here and would love to have your support by subscribing to our channel. We also love hearing from you, so please connect with us and share your thoughts. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please let us know. If you're interested in learning more about biological medicine or trauma-informed movement, check out the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future. Welcome to Connecting with the Toms. I'm Julie, your trauma-informed movement coach. I'm Dr. Tom, sitting here in beautiful Arizona, as other people are suffering through winter. But it's this is the place to be. That's where all the snowbirds are. Well, I got to say, though, this winter has not been too bad yet. It hasn't. We barely have any snow, so it's been very mild here. So I'm enjoying, I'm coming to you from Barrie, Ontario, and it's a mild day here. So there you go. So welcome to <laughs> welcome to our podcast. We are a daughter-father duo here to provide some health tips to help you live your best life. And so today uh, we're going to be diving into insulin resistance. But something that has come up in our last podcast actually, is offering you more space to do parasympathetic activities or practice some parasympathetic breaks. And so we have come up with the idea of, we want to offer you an opportunity to have a parasympathetic break right at the beginning of this podcast. So moving forward, I will be taking you through a specific breathing exercise to help you shift from protection to connection, meaning if you're stuck in a survival state, if you're stuck in a sympathetic state, I'm going to be able to show you quickly some different breathing exercises that you can do to help you shift into a more parasympathetic or relaxed state. Dad, did you want to add anything to that? Only from the aspect of most people don't realize that they they are stuck in uh, sympathetic dominance. They think they're relaxed. They think they, they meditate or they do yoga or they do some form of breathing and they think that that gets them out of it. But uh, what we'll hope to show uh, in in uh, future ones is more talking about heart rate variability, which some people will be familiar with, some of you may not be, but really it's through that type of uh, instrument that we can truly show people that they are indeed stuck in sympath and, uh, sympathetic dominance, which is a problem. And breathing, I'm finding through 2023, now that they're in the new year, is has come up much more frequently to realize that the most common presentations of fatigue, insomnia, fatigue, depression, post-COVID is a function of sympathetic dominance. And even though I've shared breathing as part of our basic treatment guidelines for the last 25 years, it's become more evident that people really don't know how to breathe. So you're, you're starting each podcast this time uh, with a different activity will help people realize which and find which one will be the most beneficial for them so we can start there what we're going to do so what i'm going to do is i'm going to today we're going to work on the psychological side but before we do just as my dad said a lot of people don't know that they are in a, a stress state so i like to tell help people understand like how do i know i'm in a stress state from a, uh, a biological or from your body because many times when we are living in survival we are stuck in our heads and we're not able to get into our body because that is a that's a safety mechanism that's what your body your body is doing that uh your brain and body are doing that so you're not able to get into your body and that's a big 
thing that is that that's blocking you in terms of healing so what we want to be able to do is just to quickly assess if you are in a stress state is i want you to just reach underneath your rib cage right by your sternum press up a little bit and push a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right and just notice if you are tender underneath the rib cage so most people will be a little bit more tender on the right because that's where your liver is and the when the liver is working a little extra extra you're going to feel a little bit of tenderness so you just want to feel is there some tenderness on the left or that right the vagus nerve actually innervates here what happens when people are in survival they will be tender here so that is a sign of protection so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take you through the psychological sigh. I'll explain it first and then we're going to do it together. It's very quick. So research has shown that this is actually the fastest way for you to shift from protection to connection, meaning from survival to rest and digest. So you're moving from sympathetic to parasympathetic, however you want to look at it. Okay. So what you're going to do is you're just going to, do, uh, you're going to sniff in, you're going to take a full breath in through the nose. And then at the top, when you're like pretty much full, you're going to sniff in a little bit more. Okay, so you're going to go and then sniff again, hold that tension, and then I like to go three, two, one, and then let it go. Okay, so you're going to do that three times. Okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to create internal pressure, that internal pressure. So in the trauma world, we call it leaning into tension. What you're doing is you're creating tension or a myofascial compression on the inside of your body. Okay, are you ready to do it? Ready to do it, Dan? I'll let's do it go. with you. So let's, let's go. go. Let's, let's <laughs> I'm go. using you as my. I need. I'm. A, I'm a visual person, so <laughs> I'm using my visual. All right. So everybody, go ahead and uh, big breath in through the nose. Again, hold. Three, two, one. Let it go. You can let out an actual sigh. Sound is actually the fastest way to influence your nervous system. Just so you know, so you can make a different sound. Go again. Breathe in. Hold. Three, two, one. One more time, breathe in. Three, two, one. There you go, beautiful. So there you go, now recheck. So you may feel a little bit lightheaded, some people, and what we're doing is that you're actually creating, there's an O2, CO2 uh, imbalance, and so that lightheadedness is that we're actually creating more space for you to breathe. So check again that sternum, uh, did it shift? Was it tender before? Was it tender? Is it tender now? What typically happens is that tenderness typically gets a little bit less. So if it was like a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 on the scale, it's gonna be a little bit less. If it didn't go away, that's okay. This one may not work for you. And that's why each podcast we're going to be, or I'm going to be showing you, we're going to be showing you different breathing exercises that you can do that resonate with your nervous system. Because the one thing we do know is that everybody has a unique story. Everybody has a unique experience to their nervous system. So we want to show you that, you know, when somebody says just do breathing, it, you got to find the one that resonates with your nervous system at the end of the day. Not just, it's not a blanket statement. It's not just like, this is going to work for everybody. That's absolutely not true. That's not trauma informed in my opinion. So we want to find the one that resonates with you. Cool. All right. How did that work for you? How'd that feel Dad? That's great. That's said each time. <laughs> uh, it'll be a different one. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Did you like that one? Was that, that, that resonate with you or meh? Yeah, it's, it's easy. I mean, it's easy. It's quick. People can do it. You know, because yeah. we're, we're having people, you know, stand up every hour and move for one minute, 
you know, just in general to, you know, so we're trying to, in, trying to find different things for different people that, that will break their everyday cycle. So that's Absolutely. another easy one that you could do anytime. You'll be sitting at a stoplight and do that one, That's it. uh, you know, three times in 30 seconds. So it's, you can do it fast, quick, you know, you can be sitting on the toilet for God's sake. So you can do it anywhere, anytime, Absolutely. any place. So it's, it's fast, easy. That's perfect. You got it. And that's why they say that's why this one is the the quickest one to shift because box breathing, you know, it's going to take at least it takes at least Yeah. 16 seconds. Mm Well, the, my preference, one of the reasons this topic is, is because we are, the uh, society's become obsessed with Ozempic and fat pills to, to lose weight. In fact, in the United States, the company Lilly has just introduced a program that they will sell directly to the consumer, pills for weight loss. So, you know, that's, that's, we're not going to talk about weight loss. We're going to talk about a little bit more the aspect of, but what is the underlying component? Why somebody would actually be considering this and why in the United States, something like 40% of the population is considered to be in the overweight slash obese category. So, but before we get there, things we can be doing, somebody has a desire to lose weight is what is what is one of the physiologic mechanisms that may be underlying that you can be thinking about and working on because insulin is typically thought about something with uh, diabetes which interestingly the ozempic is supposed to be treating but now because of the weight loss that people are getting because they they lose their appetite and they don't eat as much and so they lose weight and they somehow think that this is a miracle for what's going on but we should address you know why this this kind of thing has uh, developed in our society and what is what can we do about it on an everyday basis that's the direction i think we should go in Okay, sounds good. Well, can you answer like why are people getting heavier? Like why are people really struggling with weight, losing weight in your opinion? I have an opinion, but I'm curious what your opinion is. Well, I think there's no doubt that, you know, for the last 50 years, with the assumption with weight was calories in, calories out. So every diet that was there was supposedly was restricting, was about restricting, you know, the number of calories. And so we know that it takes 30, the, the decrease, whether you spend it or whether you don't take it in of 3,500 calories, you lose one pound. per se. And so every program and fitness, every weight loss program was about was restricting your calories that you would eat 3,500 calories less a week, or you would spend 3,500 more calories a week, and you would lose a pound. Well, long ago, we learned that theory doesn't work at all. And what I have known for the last 30 years is that Uh, the main reason people gain weight is because of what we just talked about, which is sympathetic dominance. 
we do know that when the when the body is under flight and fright what the what the brain assumes is that well one day you may not have any food coming because you're too busy defending yourself you're too busy protecting yourself from some unknown foreign enemy so the whole aspect of sympathetic dominance which is which equals the prevalence of uh, insulin resistance uh, is they go hand in hand and so my belief is what has happened over the last 50 years and not that people didn't have stress 5000 years ago or 500 years ago or 100 years ago they did but they also had a very different lifestyle that uh, allowed them to follow natural law so they didn't spend all their time on social media they didn't spend all their time sitting in a chair or sitting in a car they got on bicycles they walked they did movement they were farmers uh, etc so they actually were were able to uh, spend you know and be more prevalent in a parasympathetic state so why why are we gaining weight because people live under a state of chronic stress when you're in a state of chronic stress what you're doing is you're constantly feeding cortisol cortisol is with well, a hormone one of the hormones one of the 32 hormones coming out of your adrenal gland that is responsible for many many functions but one of the functions is is storage storage of fat so to speak storage of fat because one day the assumption is is that you're going to need to burn that fat in order to survive because you you're too busy to go and hunt for food uh, or find food we don't have any problem hunting for food because there's a fast food restaurant on every corner of you know in every city now so we don't have any problem finding the food however our brain hasn't caught up to the idea that we are not always in this constant sympathetic dominant state so i would say the thunder wonder factor is what we started this podcast with is we need to spend more time how do we get out of that state and next time we'll talk about some of the tools we have to be able to tell you whether you're there or not because most people don't realize that even when they think they're relaxed they're not physiologically not that's what i think is the underlying component for sure gaining weight in a society here i i think the same thing so <laughs> and the thing too is is it's interesting like my and my opinion comes from my own personal observation and my own personal experience so someone who has struggled with eating majority of my life and I want to adjust my language in terms of how my relationship with food. I am someone who has struggled a lot with eating enough and eating restrictively and eating, you know, like I'm, I'm very, I'm an A-type personality or I used to be much more A-type and I'm really good at following different plans and following different, you know, like my dad, I remember way at the beginning when I was dealing with like my chronic fatigue stuff. I was on an inflammation diet. I was really good at all that stuff, you know, really following the protocols that were in place, but I would never, I never really got the results I wanted to. And, you know, now being where I'm at, I realize that it is hundred percent stress-based. And so when people, you know, new year, new me, I want to get, I have a weight loss goal and whatnot. Oftentimes for me, the conversation leads to, let's look at your stress levels and what's impacting your stress. Like I have a, I have two new clients who have been newly diagnosed with diabetes. And instead of focusing on all these things that mainstream media tells us to work on when you're newly diagnosed, 
we're really looking at their stress levels. We're really, what we're doing is like, what are we doing to, what I, what my, my coaching is really offering is how do we offer more parasympathetic breaks into their life to help them manage their stress, which will then impact their weight. So it just, the hardest part is, I think, in my opinion, is shifting your lifestyle to be able to offer more parasympathetic breaks. That seems to be the biggest obstacle that I'm seeing right now is that I don't have the time. I mean, that's always been an excuse, but that's where I've been really hammering home on Instagram is that like, just like we did with the psychological sky, there are many simple free things that you can do that take very little time to help you shift into a parasympathetic state. It's just that it's just it's not talked about enough because like Zempec don't want you to know this stuff because you won't take their pill <laughs> right at the end of the day so like the pharmaceutical companies or whoever you want to blame the big bad wolf doesn't matter at the end of the day you have to take ownership of your own healing and your own stress levels but the question is do you even know how stressed you are and so that's what we'll talk about in the next time but so for this one, dad, what's something that someone can do to help manage their insulin resistance? What's one piece of advice that you would offer? So before we get there, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the whole idea of insulin and, and why perhaps the term insulin resistance may be new. It'll be new for some people, but some people will be familiar with it. Anytime you talk about insulin, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, it's diabetics who need to take insulin. So the reality is, is that it's only a small percentage of uh, diabetics, specifically type one diabetics versus type two, which is 90% of people who are diabetic versus to type one, which may be 10 or even less. So first of all, well, the difference is type one diabetes is typically an autoimmune disease. It often starts, can be related to having a viral infection. Some people, the number of type one diabetics went up during COVID, for example, because unfortunately the COVID virus in their case affected their pancreas and the, the beta cells, which is responsible for making insulin was affected. They got shut down and you need to lose about over 90% of your beta cells before your body is not capable of producing enough insulin. So a type one diabetic needs insulin. They are not insulin resistant. That is not the issue in real those, that, those people. However, by far the most common diabetic in the Western world is a type 2 diabetic, which means they actually make too much insulin in many cases because of the fact that they have developed this insulin resistance. Insulin resistance simply means that your cells, the receptors on your cell walls that are responsible for you know, uptake of insulin and the function of insulin is to remove blood sugar glucose, if you like, from your bloodstream and put it into your cell. And why does our cell need glucose? Because that's the gasoline that, that our mitochondria require in order to make ATP, which is the energy that our body requires to do all the functions that it does. Specifically, our brain is the prime tissue that requires insulin excuse me, the glucose. And so, but we don't get insulin resistance in our brain. We get insulin resistance in our, mostly in our middle area, in our digestive area around the middle. So the so-called muffin top, uh, if you like, uh, that people develop 
you know, it used to be, you know, in, in the days past, oh, you have a beer belly. But now, yeah, that may be true. But now it's less about a beer belly and more about insulin resistance. And so what insulin resistance requires is that the pancreas is required to continually secrete higher amounts of insulin on an everyday basis in general in order to try and get enough glucose into the cells so that they have enough glucose to function. So we know that fatigue, I said earlier, is probably one of the most common presentations that uh, people present with to their physician. You know, they're just, they just don't have the spunk that they used to have. And they say, oh, I'm getting older and I don't have it anymore. So, you know, one of the tools that, that will work for many people and with the first tool I'll suggest is the concept of uh, intermittent fasting. Physiologically, we have evolved over time of not eating three meals a day, believe it or not. And how our body evolved is the fact that, you know, you didn't, you didn't have access. You didn't have refrigerators. You didn't have a potentially food. Uh, you didn't have the corner store where you can go buy something or you didn't have a fast food restaurant that you could stop at. You didn't have a Tim Hortons. You didn't have a Starbucks that you could stop on the way to work, uh, et cetera, to get something to sort of turn your, turn your engines to, to get them going in, in the morning. So we know that physiologically, the body, as we have evolved, does best ideally by giving the whole digestive system about a, you know, we'll say from 12 to even 18 hours of physiologic rest. And by giving it that particular rest, it means that the body doesn't have to continually be secreting insulin. There always will be some insulin in your uh, bloodstream. And so what I routinely do for my patients is I test their insulin level. And I know the numbers in Canada will be different than what the numbers that we use in the United States, but, you know, the labs uh, in the United States uh, use a reference range of something like two to 25, which is ridiculous, in my opinion. In Canada, the, the, there will be corresponding numbers. <clears throat> the ideal fasting insulin levels in the United States using the United States numbers is five or less. <clears throat> but people come in, they're 12, they're 15. I've seen them as high as 50, but you know, I've seen them at 24 and they're said, oh, they're normal. When you have that much insulin fasting after having not eaten, you're basically already in major insulin resistance uh, because of the fact that the body is secreting all this insulin in order to try and supply uh, the glucose necessary to the cells. So intermittent fasting means you take a period of time that is most suitable for your particular schedule. It could be from 10 to 6, 10 in the morning till 6 in the evening. It could be from 11 to 7. It could be from 12 to 6. It doesn't work for 100% of people, which would suggest that 100% of people, of course, are not having insulin resistance. So that's not a big issue for them. But for anybody who does, for anybody who has the stress, it's, it's worthy of giving it a try to see whether or not how you feel with doing that. And people say, oh, don't you get hungry? Well, the body will adapt and adjust and you will support, help support the, the concept of insulin resistance by simply not putting, by giving your digestive system what amounts to, as I said, from 12 to ideally even 16 to 18 hour rest. So intermittent fasting would be the first thing to, to consider, I would say. Yeah, I was like thinking about those people that like my husband, for instance, like he gets like I know it has something it probably has something to do with the liver 
and just what's going on there. So what would you say to those people that, you know, can only do, I guess, like you said, like it, there, it varies, right? So you don't have to do it, you know, if your usual break between is like your sleep pattern, if you, you know, like from your last meal at night to when you wake up in the morning, you know, you want to just maybe increase that window, just start, you know, if, if you're, it's like a seven hour window, then maybe try to work on an eight hour window and just start incrementally, you know, improving it that way instead of being like, well, I have to be 10 because Dr. Tom said it has to be 10, 10 to 18. You know, I got to do that. Just that's what he said. Right. So you got to work on what works for you. Right. So, but what would you say to those people that do really struggle or that are like hesitating? Like, there's no way I'm doing that. What would you say to them? So as you said, it would be initially just try and increase it by 30 minutes and then one hour. But generally speaking, so, you know, what you're specific. So there are people who say I need to eat every two hours uh, because if I don't, I get upset. I get a headache. My energy drops, yeah, exactly. uh, et cetera. So, you know, this is sort of the old component of classic hypoglycemia, too low a blood sugar. But now that we have the aspect of continuous glucose monitoring, it's pretty easy to show that people are actually not hypoglycemic. Their blood sugar actually is quite normal. They think they are because their body has become accustomed to that. So what that actually means is your issue is not about blood sugar. Your issue is other hormones. Specifically, the one we're talking about is cortisol, but it could be your thyroid. It could be you know one of the other many hormones that we have in our body that are also out of balance. And they may be contributing to the component that your sense of that needing to eat every couple of hours is a function of that. So as we're treating those patients, it is necessary to, if you need to eat every couple of hours, start off, but the goal will be over time as we balance not only just the aspect of insulin and blood sugar, we're actually looking at the entire picture of your entire endocrine system also, what is the nervous system doing? Also, what is the lymphatic system doing? So in other words, our 11 major organ systems, we're, we're working on each of them individually because it's never a one, one and done. It's, there's, never, there's no patient who ever comes in and there's only one specific problem in one specific organ system because the body just doesn't work like that. And that's why, the, unfortunately, our society of medicine that's that's evolved into specialized medicine, where you see a specialist is, has, has many problems associated with that. Because, you know, you go to the cardiologist supposedly for a heart problem, but you don't have a heart problem if unless your digestive system, your lymphatic system, your nervous system, your respiratory system, uh, your local motor system, those, those are not working properly, I can guarantee you. And we can say that for any specialist that you go to. They go to pinpoint a specific area in the organ. They only look at the organ. They don't look at the rest of the body. We're looking at insulin resistance as something that's a that's a result of other organ systems being out of balance, the nervous system and the endocrine system coming together typically. But then we haven't even talked about the food itself. Like what food are you putting into the person that, that basically is feeding this type thing? So what diet are they ultimately following? And you said it yourself, uh, there's a thousand and one diets out there. I generally just start with an, an anti-inflammatory diet as a place to start, but we have food sensitivities. We have ketogenic diet. 
you know, we have low carb, high carb, we have paleo diets. There's a, there's, you know, it goes on and on and on. So yes, the diet has to become individualized to uh, each person. However, we need to start somewhere. So let's just start with removing the foods that we, that we know are the most inflammatory. So we go back to eating, you know, the foods that are whole carbs, you know, my preferred carbs are actually seeds. When we look at quinoa, millet and amaranth, brown rice, perhaps the buckwheat, you know, are, are feasible. And, you know, when you look at an anti-inflammatory diet, what you're starting to remove is the white foods for the most part, white foods, the biggest aspect of white foods, of course, are flour. The most common flour is, is now a wheat that has gluten. Many people are now familiar with gluten because, even to this day, Walmart still sells probably the most uh, organic foods, the most gluten-free foods because of their, their volume uh, per se. But you know, and yes, and some restaurants have gluten-free options, but for the most part, 95% of the population that's totally foreign when you start talking about that type of thing, because they're so used to eating, you know, a typical breakfast of a bagel or toast. They're typical eating pastas and a whole variety of different types of things, sandwiches, for lunch, et cetera, et cetera. So that plays a role in the insulin resistance. It plays a role in continuing to feed the sympathetic dominance because we tend to think that, oh, I need to satisfy my brain uh, because you're developing insulin resistance. The brain says, I need the sh I need glucose in order to think, uh, to, fo to focus. So, so it's a, you know, you're on the hamster wheel. One thing leads to the next. And that then becomes a type of thing that happens over not not a few weeks, a months. It happens over years, and it's a gradual thing. And when did it start? It started typically in your perceived perceptions of what you were fed as a child, what food was available when you were a child. We know that, for example, people for the Second World War, certainly in the Netherlands, took till 1956 to those people be got out of the food dependence idea. So we're talking, you know, 11 years after the war, uh, people, you know, raised in the Netherlands that had this potential aspect that they didn't have enough food. So, you know, and, and there are not, we're not talking third world countries here. We tend to think in, in the Western world, food calories is, is not a generally a problem. Food quality is the problem that ultimately is going on for people. So that is trying to roll in a whole bunch of different things into this model of uh, insulin resistance. Yeah, my mind went a couple different directions <laughs> when you were talking because I'm like, just watch the Netflix show, like You Are What You Eat. It was a twin study. One twin ate identical twins for eight weeks. They followed them. And, you know, one twin ate omnivore, one ate plant. And, you know, like when you watch the show, it's very, very biased in terms of what they believe you should be eating. And I think you're right, like perception is is the big key because a lot of people will, will, you know, see the result or watch the results of that and they'll make the, up their own mind. You know, like it's going to come down to how stressed are you when you eat? Because that's what came up to me as well, because a lot of times when people are eating, we don't necessarily practice the best habits. Like when we're eating, we're eating in the car, we're eating on the run, we're eating with the news on the background, we're, you know, we're eating in a stressed state. And so it does to me, in my opinion, in my experience, is that it really, I could be eating salads for an entire month and, you know, eating completely plant-based and eating whole foods. But if I'm stressed, 
my body's not going to be able to digest and, you know, take on and, and take in the nutrients that it needs because it's too busy. Like you said, no system works alone. We, everything is connected. And that's a big thing that people really need to wrap their head around. Like you said, like if it's a cardiovascular event, it's not just about your heart. There's, you know, other systems that are in play here and we have to, to stop, pause, take a minute, take a breath, maybe a psychological sigh and be like, okay, where, what, what habits do I have right now when it comes with food or when it comes to my sleep or whatever that I can help decrease my stress bucket? And my stress bucket, if you don't know what I'm talking about, in the last episode, I actually went through how to assess your stress bucket. So I highly, highly recommend that you go back and check that out. And so you get everybody should have a baseline of what their stress bucket is at. And what you want to do is really start working from there. So in terms of, you know, insulin resistance, you need to understand that, yes, food is a big, big contributor. You know, if you're not fasting, you know, like, you know, start moving the dial, open up your, your digestive pathways. But, you know, you're talking about perception, dad, perception is a huge piece of this. So your if your perception, if your perception continues to be on track of, well, I can't do that. Well, then you're not going to be able to do that, my friend. Like it's just, that's your perception. So, you know, these mind over matter, that type of thing, like willpower, all that kind of stuff, especially when it comes to weight loss. Yeah, like honestly, it really comes down to do you love yourself enough or do you, I don't know if that's really, I don't know if that's triggering for some people, but is it, do you have the compassion to show yourself some opportunities to give yourself some parasympathetic snacks that can then influence your insulin, that can influence your digestion, that can influence how your heart functions. And, you know, that's why I call them movement snacks or parasympathetic movement snacks and a psychological side is a, is a perfect one. So beyond, you know, food and intermittent fasting, dad, is there anything else that someone, what other tip that would you, would you suggest for someone to help them manage their insulin levels and resistance? You have to obviously balance your, your entire endocrine system. You obviously have to balance your nervous system. So, you know, it, what's always amazing is, as people have listened to, what are we at number 35 or or 36 of these podcasts it's like wow it sounds like there's a there's a broken record here it's like we keep going back to the types of things that how the body functions how the body works there's no magic pill take ozempic or take one of the take the new product that lily is now going to be selling directly to the consumer that's going to say oh this is how you're going to lose weight this will decrease your insulin resistance or, or go and whatever that, that uh, go to Sanobello and uh, basically permanently remove your fat with by paying a few thousand dollars. It's like, yeah, you can do that. But if it doesn't, if you don't change the mindset about what physically is going on, physiologically, what's going on, both in your mind and in your physical body, because we know that the mind body connection is now, nobody denies it anymore. You're, we in fact have a, we'll call it, we have our own nervous system within our digestive system. We have our own nervous system in our cardiovascular system. We have our nervous system that's related to our brain. So we have all these things that all work as a, it's like an orchestra. You know, you can't, you have a, an orchestra leader. And if there was only one, one instrument in that the orchestra leader was, was leading, he, he wouldn't need an orchestra leader. So our brain is, for all intents and purposes, the orchestra leader. 
that is mastering all the different instruments that are all playing at the same time. Can I interrupt that, sir? Yeah. You say the brain, but all like, but what I'm hearing more and more in research is microbiome and your gut actually is more of the lead that your gut can, it can is, is yeah, more of the leader. Like you said, the, the nervous, the gut has its mm -hmm. own nervous system, but a lot of times, like when it comes to from a autonomic autonomic perspective and from, you know, a trauma perspective, it's really from the gut. Right. It's not our brain because brain come pain comes from the brain and it's brain being like, hey, I'm on fire, but we have to get that sensation from the body first. Right. So I just want to like, like, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's it's is it is recognized. So the we'll call the brain the uh, you know, it, it, it gathers the information and then it sends signals out. So for example, you know, when we were a toddler and touched the hot stove and we pulled our finger away. Like, why did we do that? Well, because the the information from the, our receptors and our fingertips were sent up to the brain that says, that's going to burn your finger, remove your hand. So the information comes from different body parts, goes up to the brain, and then the brain it's, it tries to send Ultimately information. Decides. Yeah. Didn't make the decision. Okay, move your arm or your right. hand. Otherwise, you're going to burn it. So yes, it's the uh, it gets it gathers the information from every organ, every body part. So it's gathering information from your gut. In fact, it's believed that the the for the cardiovascular system, there's more information coming from the heart to the brain than from the brain to the heart. Right. Because the heart is saying I'm not working well, so it's sending information to the brain that says give me more oxygen. So it says breathe faster or do other things. So that's we could say that that's true for all organ systems that they are responsible for sending information and then the brain is is the recruiter of saying okay there what do you go. need to do now do you need to move away from it do you need yeah. to do this it's not the brain doing it the brain is the director that's why i'm calling it the orchestra leader right. of uh all the, the the orchestra leader is not playing the instruments the instruments are being played by the different organ systems makes sense absolutely yeah. Yeah, because I think that's, but I think that's where people, a lot of people get confused though, is that they think the brain controls it all, but it's not. It's actually the one directing, being like, mm -hmm. is this is this dangerous or is this not? So the this, the brain ultimately has to make the decision. But the problem is that when you experience trauma or when you're in dysregulation or when you're stressed all the time, you're there's it's like you're like the way one of my clients likes to explain it is that it's like your body speaking German and your brain speaking English, you need an interpreter. And so what happens when you have trauma or when you have dysregulation in your body, there's this disconnect or broken telephone game happening that I don't know what those sensory, you know, that sensory input is telling me because I don't want to feel right. So a lot of people just shut down. Like, I don't like, why do I want to feel that? Cause that hurts. Like you said, I'm not going to touch the stove. That hurts. I'm not going to do that again. Right. And then, when we come from emotions, well, you know, I'm not going to go talk to that person because they don't make me, you know, they make me feel bad about myself. Well, I don't want to do that. Like we avoid, right? And that's where the disassociation and all that kind of stuff. So then if we're shutting down all of this sensory input, then yeah, of course, things aren't going to work properly. Of course, your digestion is going to be off. Of course, your blood sugar is going to be like all over the place because the, you're shutting down the systems, right? You're shutting down the organs. So yeah, that makes absolutely, I love the orchestra 
analogy that's fantastic but it makes so much sense when you understand like okay well that's why people who experience trauma don't feel their bodies so we have to you know learn different ways and that's why breath work is such a a a fantastic portal or a way for you to connect with your body and be like hey what is going on in my body you know like oh i am holding my breath or or you know am i breathing the five seconds or whatever right so a lot of times we don't if you don't know what's going on in your body right now you're not alone that is a, that is a stress response that is a normal response when we're under too much stress so what we want to do is bridge that gap and help you connect that so and that's why the more you do that the better your insulin will be right so then you'll be able to lose weight <laughs> ultimately i think Ultimately, that's certainly, and it, you know, this discussion is not necessarily about weight loss, but it is a reality of, of why we have such a such a rampant problem in in Western culture of, you know, why you know as we basically have outlined uh, through this podcast is it's not just a function of calories in, calories out, even though there's still this idea that oh, go to the gym more often and burn more calories uh, and you'll lose weight. Uh, or you'll build muscle for say, and then, you know, reduce, go to some of the 101 different places that offer the dietary type suggestions. You know, when we, when we look at diet, you know, what we really are looking at is how do we supply the necessary building blocks to, for for all body components? So we are looking at carbohydrates. We're looking at proteins. We're looking at healthy fats. We're also looking at vitamins and minerals. And of course, the most important nutrient that we've always talked about is water. Since the greatest percentage of our body is water, women being somewhere in the range 55%, men being about 60%, babies being their realm about 80%. And then we look at the different organs, the brain specifically, since we're talking about it, is about 80% water. And so, you know, the besides glucose, the, the, the most important nutrient for the brain is is hydration. And somebody who complains about, oh, a mild cognitive decline or brain fog, or I can't think, or I lose the word or that kind of thing. It's like, well, how much have you hydrated today? Uh, so the old rule of thumb, half your body weight in ounces is still a rule of thumb. In fact, I even heard this week, somebody said, instead of, uh, you know, eight glasses at eight ounces, 64 ounces, which is a couple of liters, they're saying three liters or 96 ounces may be closer to the reality which is the first time I'd heard that sort of in a public forum on a national television program said, well, somebody is paying more attention to the component of hydration. So hydration equally becomes a component of insulin resistance, as does the component that we talked about, the the brain, uh, the food, the movement, the lymphatics. In other words, natural laws, same old, same old, oh, this is a broken record. It's like, yeah, damn it, it is a broken record. So mm-hmm. either we listen to it or we don't. You you right. laid out the perfect reason why people don't because trauma is something that people don't want to experience again. So no. we don't touch the stove again. But the other traumas that we are not often aware of because they were just built into our perceived perceptions, now they start to come up. And so the therapies that you do, the therapies that I do, try and awaken that is to try and get people past that to realize that that trauma doesn't have to keep influencing their physiology and their mental emotional state on an ongoing uh, basis. 
Exactly. Well said. Well said. So, I mean, we can keep going in different directions, but ultimately, just to recap, if you are someone that, you know, is struggling with insulin resistance, if you want to look at losing weight, something to, so things to, to consider are intermittent fasting, are improving your sensory connection to your body, looking at the foods that are going into your body, uh, the habits in which are surrounding when you do eat, and also hydration is a big thing. Like, what are you putting in your body? Check your stress levels, know what they are. And that's actually what our next podcast is going to be all about and showing you and discussing different tools that you can use to manage your, your stress levels. So dad, is there anything that, has, that you also want to share to finish off this topic? As you said, this topic theoretically is never finished because it never. Just leads no. into more and more and more discussions about things. But I hope that, you know, the our people who've just listened to this will sort of sit back. This may be one definitely worth listening to again because of the fact that we put a lot of nuggets in this one of mm -hmm. things that you could consider. You know, your goal may not, you may have, you can have a, and as I do, you know, a, a young woman or middle-aged woman who weighs 110 pounds have insulin resistance. It says, well, she's not overweight. You don't have to be overweight to have insulin resistance uh, is the bottom line. It's not about weight. It's about physiology and all these uh, organ systems uh, needing to work together and getting our brain to be the orchestra leader to organize all our 11 main, main organ systems. So that would be a good place to uh, wrap, wrap this one up. Actually, can I just ask one question? Because it just popped in my head. Does this all does this apply to children children as well? Yes, because we, all ages, they're right? actually it's all ages. It it's Perfect. they have the same components that their bodies are working. They're not energetically mature until their mid twenties, mind you. But the same factors that affect us as adults is the same things that are affecting our children. Right. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Okay. Totally. So yeah, so same same rules apply. So if you're a parent or a grandparent listening, and you know you have a child, a grandchild, or child that's struggling, you know with that, then it's these these apply these apply to them as well. So there you go. So thanks Absolutely. so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you supporting us. And uh, next time we'll be talking about some stress management tools that will help you live a better life. So we look forward to sharing that one. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody. We'll talk soon.